0: Well, good morning. Awfully nice to see you. You look great this morning. Have you kind of done the thing I've done that in your mind now you're deleting the mask and you're not seeing the mask? No? It's weird, isn't it? I guess maybe I'm weird. I don't know. Hey, I want to thank those of you who participated in the food drive, and uh, I've already heard some pretty amazing stories of things that happened during that food drive that were just uh, very very encouraging and and uh, to those who were participating and if you have a story like that uh, I would love to hear it um of uh, people coming and praying on site uh, strangers you know who who come up and and uh, and just pray for those who are volunteering and, and bless them in the name of Jesus. It's pretty awesome. So uh, I would love to hear some of those stories. Also want to let you know uh, the the walk for water. Uh, I am going to be there. Just want to let you know in advance. I'm participating. I hope you will too. Uh, I have no idea, you know, how far 6K is because I, I wasn't paying attention in math class. So, uh, but uh, I'll, how many? Oh, that's a cinch. 3.7 miles. Anybody, just about anybody can do that. So, I uh, hope you'll participate. I uh, also want to let you know that uh, up to your right, on the far right of the sanctuary right now at the front, is a woman who's having a birthday today. Uh, <laughs> as she pulls up her mask a little higher, uh, Rosie Sept is uh, Pastor Steve's wife, and this is her birthday today. So, happy birthday, Rosie. He's going to kill me later, I'm sure, but um, 39, I think, today, right? Close, yeah, <laughs> all right. Uh, also, want to let you know about um, the series that we're starting a new series today, but I want to let you know about the next one that's coming, because at, uh, at, when we finish this series, then the next Sunday will be Easter, and then the, day, the week after that, we're starting a new series through the Apostles' Creed, and um, which is... You know a, a a faith statement that is so fundamental to uh, every Christian it doesn't matter what stripe, what flavor, what tribe of Christian you are. The Apostles' Creed, if you are a Christian, if you're a biblical Christian, the Apostles' Creed uh, is is something that kind of is a center point for all of us. But it it'll be a doctrinal study when we're looking at um, at uh, the full kind of the full sweep of Christian doctrine and I hope that you'll be here for that and I hope that you'll invite some people I also want to let you know that we're we're wanting to start some new small groups um, for specifically for that series maybe they'll continue beyond that series but at least for that series we'd like to start some new small groups now those those small groups can meet in a home they can meet um, you know in, in a place of business they can they can meet on zoom or some other uh online platform um, but uh, if you would be willing to uh, offer yourself to lead a group or to host a group uh, I would sure be grateful and all the materials will be supplied to you you don't have to you don't have to create anything on your own uh, and really is just facilitating a discussion and so hope that you might consider being a part of that. well um, brand new series today. Fear, faith, in the future, and and I want you to know that uh, this sermon today brought me literally to my knees, and uh, I, I suppose every sermon series ought to bring me to my knees, but this one uh, this one is uh, so heavy on my heart, and, and there's so much that I want to share uh, that we we won't I've realized we won't even have time for, but um, I hope that. Uh, this will be a challenge to you. Um, I was going to say a blessing to you. I I hope it'll be a blessing. More than that, I hope I hope it'll be a challenge to you, and and that you it will cause you to think about your faith maybe in a new way, and think about the world in which we're living and how it's uh, how it impacts us and how we impact it. Fear faith and the future. Um, let's let's pray again, will we, William? Father, thank you for uh, today. And thank you for this new series. I pray, Lord, that you would speak to us today by your Holy Spirit. And, uh, Lord, that uh, we would hear you and uh, that we would respond intelligently and and by faith to the things that you reveal to us. Lord, the battle does belong to you. And, uh, and we need to be constantly reminded that when we fight, we fight on our knees. So... Uh, Teach us now, we pray, in Jesus' name, amen. The world is changed. I feel it in the water. I feel it in the earth. I feel it in the air. Much that once was is lost. Much that once was is lost. And with these words begins the fellowship of the ring first in the Lord of the Rings trilogy of movies. And Tolkien's classic portrays, as you know, a great conflict between good and evil played out in the imaginary setting of Middle Earth. And our nation and our world today are, are, are now locked in a parallel battle that is not imaginary, but it is very real. And this series of messages that we've titled Fear, Faith, and the Future are going to point to some, some major facets of that conflict, and explore how our faith ought to inform the ways in which we as Christians in this world respond, how we can prepare ourselves, how we can prepare our children, how we can prepare our church for the prospect of persecution and suffering, and how the the imminent coming of Christ, which the Apostle Paul pointed to as the purifying hope of the church, will enable genuine Christians, authentic Christians, to persevere in the face of whatever comes However, it comes and whenever it comes. The world has changed. Much that once was is lost. The movie begins on a somber note, and one gets the sense that whatever the narrator has in mind, the value, its value was realized only after it had been lost. And I wonder if you, as I do, have the sense that this is really true in the real world world in which we are living. No one would disagree that we live in a world of exponential change, and I, I'd like to invite you this morning to join me in some serious reflection on the question of, of whether there are things in our world that we have lost or maybe in peril of losing that are in fact precious to us and in the absence of which our lives might never be the same what once was, that has now been lost? That's the question. First Chronicles 12 includes a listing by tribe of the armed troops that were serving under David's command. And there's an interesting statement in verse 32 regarding the fighting men of the tribe of Issachar, that, that they were men who had understanding of the times to know what Israel ought to do. Understanding of the times to to know what Israel ought to do. In Matthew sixteen one through three, Jesus chided the Pharisees. It says, "And the Pharisees and Sadducees came." And to test him, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. He answered them, when it is evening, you say it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. You you know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. Does anybody really know what time it is? Does anybody care? thank you. Do do we understand the times in which we are living? Can we interpret the signs? Do we know what to do, or are we sound asleep? As Paul wrote to the Christians in Rome, that you know the time, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand, so then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. You know, you may look around, and this may be true of a lot of us, and, and feel that something has changed, that something very important has, has shifted. And you may be able to point to to various events and various developments and movements, movements in our culture and in our government that signal radical divergence from the way things used to be. But you may not yet have begun to connect the dots and to develop a big picture view. And this morning I, I want to help you gain at least a little larger view. And I want you to know in advance that you, you don't have to agree with me on every point that I'm going to make. Um, it's possible that you might find some of my conclusions to be extreme. Uh, that's okay. Uh, But I want to challenge you today to consider some of the signs of the times and, and to inquire on a deeper level about where we are headed here in the United States and what it all means. So having said that, allow me to point out a few areas in which I believe we Americans have suffered significant losses. And I don't have enough time for everything I want to do today. And I want you to know I cut a whole bunch out at about eleven o'clock last night. Um, but let's 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 get after it. The first loss is uh, that I think is so important is the loss of belief in objective truth, and the rise of relativism. We're living in a day when when each individual is allowed their own truth. Have you noticed that? I mean, you have your truth, I have mine. One set of truth claims is as good as any other. Uh, According to the dogma of our culture, your truth and my truth may must both be accepted and and respected, even when the two are mutually contradictory. When objective facts and reasoning actually tend to prove one to be false and the other to be true. And we've become habituated, we've become enculturated to a way of life in which there are few, if any, shared beliefs and customs that transcend the sovereignty of the individual and their right to define their own reality. So so what our world experiences is a bewildering diversity of truth claims that are constantly swirling, constantly demanding legitimacy and affirmation. Am I on track so far? Relativism is among the reasons that it's increasingly difficult to evangelize our present culture. And what's necessary in our present age then is that the truth of the gospel and the word of God still be communicated verbally and in traditional ways, but more urgently that it be demonstrated in a consistent authentic, tangible, observable lifestyle. The world is watching and saying, I don't want to hear what you have to say. I want to see your life. Jesus said, by this all men will know that you're my disciples, that you love one another. And I think we really minimize the significance of what he was saying in those words. Nothing else will ultimately work. Alexis de Tocqueville was a, a French historian and political writer who came to America in the early 1800s to inquire what it was that made America great. And he ended up writing a, a four-volume analysis of the political and social system of the United States that he titled simply Democracy in America. And he's famous for uh, one of his summary statements that, that said, I sought for the greatness and genius of America in her commodious harbors and her ample rivers, and it was not there. In her fertile fields and boundless forests, and it was not there. In her rich mines and her world her vast world commerce, and it was not there. In her democratic Congress and her matchless constitution, and it was not there. Not until I went into the churches of America and heard Her pulpits flame with righteousness Did I understand the secret of her genius and power. America is great because she is good, and if America ever ceases to be good, she will cease to be great. Powerful words. De Tocqueville was convinced that democracy in America would not survive the loss of Christian faith, that that self-government required shared convictions about moral truth, and he saw that Christian faith drew people out of themselves out of their individualism and and taught them that laws must be firmly rooted in a morally revealed and uh, and guaranteed in, in morality rather revealed and guaranteed by God. He wrote that if a democratic nation loses religion by which he meant Christianity, then it falls prey to inordinate individualism, materialism and democratic despotism, and inevitably prepares its citizens for servitude. Therefore, he asserted, one must maintain Christianity within the new democracies at all cost. I think he was right on, don't you? In a relativistic post-Christian environment, then the handwriting is really on the wall. Another area of loss is the loss of the rule of law and the rise of anarchy. The rule of law describes a principle under which all persons and institutions and entities are accountable to laws that are publicly disclosed, that are equally enforced and independently adjudicated. The U.S. Constitution is intended to serve as uh, the firm foundation against which New legislation is evaluated and written into law. And when duly constituted law is unequally applied, when it's unequally enforced or not enforced at all and unequally adjudicated, what we are left with, what we are left with is anarchy. And we're seeing the rise of anarchy all across our nation, are we not? Domestic terror groups like Antifa, including those who finance them, seem to be operating with complete impunity. And, and they're even endorsed and encouraged by elected politicians who have otherwise sworn an oath to protect and defend the Constitution. And lawlessness just seems to reign from Washington State to Washington, D.C., from the federal buildings in Portland to the halls of Congress and the highest levels even of law enforcement. Let me suggest another one, a loss of agreement on the facts of our shared history. In George Orwell's dystopian novel, 1984, the party slogan was, who controls the past controls the future, and who controls the present controls the past. And in that novel, the the party held power by comprehensive control of, of the conscious narrative of history. So that if all records told the same tale, if they all conformed to the same narrative, then a lie could pass into history and become regarded as truth. And Orwell envisioned a setting in which the party could just thrust its hand into the past and say of this or that event, it it never happened. History, even recent history, was in a constant state of revision or Erasure. And it's interesting that that he captured that because totalitarian movements always include, always, always, always include, the dismantling and the rewriting of history and cultural memory. Polish intellectual Leszek Kolakowski, an ex-communist, reflects that the great ambition of totalitarianism is the total possession and control of human history. Some of you know of the Russian Christian dissident Alexander Solzhenitsyn who wrote a landmark book, The The Gulag Archipelago. And he wrote that the first step a tyrant takes when he wants to enslave a people is to take away their history. And why? Because a people's shared history tells them that they are, who they are, why they are, and how they should therefore live. The history of the Jewish people has been remarked on by many, many authors down through the centuries. Kind of answering the question, how is it that the Jewish faith, in spite of all the all of the persecution and all of the pogroms and, and the Holocaust, how is it that that the Jews have survived. And the answer is that they keep telling their story to their children. They keep reciting through their feasts and their festivals the history of of who they are and and who God called them to be. A woman named Olga Rusanova, a Russian woman who grew up in Siberia and is now a naturalized United States citizen, says that in the Soviet Union they killed all the people who could remember history. And this made it easier for them to create false history to serve the regime's needs. And so we should ask, do we see a a threat to our shared history in the United States today? Think as Exhibit A about the movement we've seen in the past several years to deface and destroy or, or to displace our national monuments, our statues, our historical buildings, our artwork. Consider books that have been expunged from Uh, reading lists in the schools because they don't fit the desired narrative. Books like Tom Sawyer and Huck Finn that I think are national treasures that that tell us about a, a portion of our past, and they're lost. Think of the vilification of those whom we've heretofore honored as our national heroes, especially our founders, when in an attempt to somehow purify our national consciousness by purging our collective memory of people and events that are scars on our history like slavery, like the Civil War, or like the conquest and systematic subjugation of Native Americans, like persistent racism, we then deprive ourselves and our offspring of the lessons that we can and should continue to learn from our history. I want to point out, and I think it's very important to point out, one very real current threat to an accurate remembering of our national history, which is known as the 1619 Project. You may have heard of it or be familiar with it. It's, a, it's an educational curriculum that was published by the New York Times, and it is now being taught in classrooms in major cities in all 50 states. It, is, it represents a massive attempt to reframe American history by displacing July fourth, seventeen 1776 and the Declaration of Independence as the traditional founding of the United States, And replacing it with 1619, which is the year that the first African slaves arrived on the North American continent. Certainly important to remember that date, but by reframing history, the 1619 Project is in turn an attempt to reshape America's national identity by making racism and hatred the central principle in our nation's founding and in everyday life today. The the core claim of the 1619 project is that the patriots fought the American Revolution to preserve slavery. And in that, they ignore dynamics like taxation without representation and things like the Stamp Act and the the burning desire of the colonies to be free from the, the tyranny of the English government and And it ignores the fact that England itself didn't abolish slavery in its colonies until 1807, 31 years after the Declaration of Independence. See, no serious person, let me be clear, no serious person can ever deny the significance of slavery in the history of the United States. Neither would any person of compassion justify the dehumanization or the atrocities perpetrated on black slaves by their slaveholders, nor should anyone deny the fact of racism in all of its expressions. But the basic premise of the 1619 Project is that our democracy's foundings, our founding ideals, were false at the time that they were written, that American history was founded in evil, and that evil has infused every aspect of human life. Now, it's true that some of our founders were themselves slaveholders. We know that. Our founders were not perfect men. They were men shaped by their own times. But I happen to believe that most of them were great men. It's also true that Thomas Jefferson, himself a slaveholder, as the principal author of the Declaration of Independence, was able to say, we find these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal and are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable unalienable rights, among them life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Jefferson in time became an advocate for abolition and for the education of slaves so that they could live as free men and women when they were emancipated. And I don't think we should ever forget that, that he and the other founders, regardless of where they started, set in motion principles and processes that awakened the conscience of our nation and led ultimately to the abolition of slavery slavery in America. And today the United States is the most successfully racial, diverse country in the history of the world. Does racism still persist in some places, in some hearts and in some minds? Yeah. But blacks and other minorities have risen to leadership in every aspect of society, including the presidency. We've, we've elected a black president twice, I think, right? And in November, for the first time in our history, a black woman was elected to the vice presidency. Here's something else you need to know about the 1619 Project. And the reason I share it is that some of you are parents and, and you ought to be aware of this, your grandparents, you ought to be aware of this, development in the schools. Shortly after the 1619 project was published, there was a group of distinguished historians that came together to review the curriculum, and then they wrote a letter publicly condemning it, calling it a displacement of historical understanding by ideology. More than half of that group of historians were themselves on the left side of the aisle, as it were. There's not a single reputable historian that would agree that the American Revolution was an armed effort to preserve the slave trade in America. Bottom line, take our history away and we lose any sense of an American identity. So teaching history truly and accurately, warts and all, is of enormous consequence for Americans. Let's go on to another one, loss of privacy and the rise of the surveillance state. And when we think of a surveillance state, we usually think of the Soviet Union or Communist China, places like that. But but think about this. There are security cameras everywhere you go. And these security cameras are interfaced with computer systems. And the data is continuously being uploaded to enormous databases. Facial recognition technology allows businesses and law enforcement and others to identify you to know where you are, who you're with, what you're doing, how you're spending your money. And anytime you swipe your credit card, data about your location, the items you're purchasing and how much you paid are captured and uploaded. Your your cell phone is always pinging against cell towers so that your location and your route of travel can be triangulated at any given time. License plate readers mounted on police cars record your presence in traffic even if they have no intention of arresting you. When you're on your computer or your smartphone, data is being constantly collected regarding your hobbies and your interests, your political leanings, your religious beliefs, where you go to church, your shopping habits, what you like to eat and drink, restaurants you frequent, who your friends are, how you spend your money, whether you're sick or well, music you enjoy, every website you've ever visited, every online movie you've ever watched, just to name a few. Electronic listening devices like Alexa and Siri and Cortana and your smartphone continuously upload data about you. They record your conversations, make note of the nature of your activities and upload that data to mega businesses like Amazon or to the mass data repository in U- Utah to which intelligence agencies like the CIA, FBI and NSA and, and even local law enforcement have total access. <laughs> Scared yet? The infamous Edward Snowden wrote that for the first time in human history, it's both technologically and financially feasible for governments to track and store nearly complete records of our private lives. How did big tech and the government get all that data? We gave it to them. We gave it to them. In fact, we've, we've given up most of our personal privacy, sometimes consciously, sometimes unconsciously. And, and what we've done is that we've exchanged our data for the conveniences that are offered by technology. And it gets worse. Most of us have smart televisions, right? Many have smart refrigerators, even. And more data is being collected. Now, now just think of all that data in the wrong hands. I mean, the technology is neutral, right? The technology itself is neutral. But imagine that data in the wrong hands. Imagine the company that feels the need to suppress what it perceives to be hatred or discrimination and chooses to leverage their enormous databases to accomplish those ends. Imagine the employer or the government agency that chooses to manipulate your data to cancel you. In Nazi Germany and Soviet Union, the, the police state would, would have to establish a network of switches, or snitches rather, and informants and, and plant bugs in people's homes, cars, and places of business. And that won't be necessary should totalitarianism come to America because the present system of data collection already accomplishes those purposes much more efficiently and much more effectively. Here's another one, loss of freedom of speech and the rise of the cancel culture. You might already be saying, well, I've not lost no freedom of speech. Really? Let's begin with this. Have you ever hushed your tones in a public setting when you've talked to someone about your political beliefs or your political affiliations or about your religious convictions for fear of someone overhearing you and outing you or even hurting you in some way, I'm going to bet that at least some of us have. And that's a relatively new phenomenon in the United States because in the past, vigorous political debate between friends without fear of reprisal or penalty has been very common. It's been kind of the the central principle of our American lifestyle. If you work for the government or in a major corporation, you've had to sit through sensitivity training and other classes in which the instructor is telling you to think and act in ways that are antithetical to your faith and and that violate your conscience. Do you speak up? In many settings, voicing dissent can result in the loss of employment, can't it? being passed over for promotions or being socially marginalized within the culture of the business. Students in classrooms from elementary school to postgraduate universities are being subjected to sanctions when they express views that diverge from either the the personal, uh, social, political, or religious views of the teacher, the instructor, or those of the institution. This past week, uh, an undergraduate education student at the State University of New York was suspended because he said in a video he posted on his personal Instagram account, a man is a man, a woman is a woman, a man is not a woman, and a woman is not a man. And Because of that statement, he was informed that his ability as an educator to maintain a classroom environment, protecting the mental and emotional well-being of all his students was called into question. He's now required to submit to mandatory remediation, which, as I read it, sounded to me like indoctrination, in order to be reinstated. And we can call into question the student's judgment in having posted something like that, but, but the suppression of free speech there is obvious, isn't it? Social elites such as actors who dare to diverge from the new group think become unemployable, become the target of malicious slander. Social media platforms are fact-checking, censoring, and even deleting posts of a political nature with which they don't agree. It happened to me for the first time just recently. Twitter and YouTube will censor and demonetize and even deplatform users who post comments and material that don't fit their political or social narrative or that they deem potentially offensive to some group of people recently recently. For the first time in history, a former president of the United States was permanently banned from his social media platform that he used to use quite freely. And if it can happen to him, it can happen to any of us. Vladimir Grigorenko immigrated from Ukraine to the United States in 2000. He now lives in Texas and and reflecting on his earlier life under Soviet rule, he says, when a people grow accustomed to living in lies, shunning taboo writers, and conforming to the official narrative, it deforms their way of thinking. And that is very difficult to overcome. And he says that he's concerned by polls showing that Americans' support for the First Amendment, which, which as we know, guarantees the constitutional right to free expression, is waning, especially among younger Americans who are increasingly tolerant, he says, of dissenting, intolerant, rather, of dissenting opinion. Grigorenko sees that as a sign that society prefers the false piece of conformity to the tensions of liberty. To grow indifferent, even hostile to free speech, he said, is suicidal for a free people. Well, I could go on so much more I wanted to say, and much I simply had to eliminate, but where's all this leading? By the way, well, I'm just going to move on. I better just move on. What I believe is that the signs indicate that we are moving as a nation toward totalitarianism. You say, what? Think about this with me. There's a difference between totalitarianism and authoritarianism. Authoritarianism describes a situation when the state monopolizes political control. We often call that a dictatorship, a form of government in in which the, the, the ruler has the right to rule without the consent of the governed. And that may be bad enough, but totalitarianism is actually much worse. Totalitarianism describes a situation in which the state... Controls absolutely everything. They define what is true. They seek to control even the thoughts and emotions of its citizens. There are survivors of Soviet and Chinese communism now living in the free world who are able, because of what they've experienced, to read the signs, and they're sounding alarms about what they see coming in America. They're they're trying to warn us and that in the United States today and in the Western world generally, we are living under pre-totalitarian conditions. They see all the signs. And they're saying, why aren't you waking up? Why don't you see what's going on around you? And unless something radical happens to interrupt that downward spiral, full totalitarianism is just around the corner. I, I did something radical um, as I was preparing for this Series. I I read the Communist Manifesto, (laughs) and now I'm getting lots of advertisements for communist material. (laughs) Surveillance state, right? (laughs) I I was absolutely surprised, honestly. I think I read it in high school, probably in a a social studies class. I I think I did, but that was a long time ago. But I was really surprised, I shouldn't have been, by, by how many direct parallels I saw with the agenda of today's left. Crazy. Doesn't it? It's just a short little book. And, uh, I'll send you all the advertisements I'm getting. I'll send you the links. But, but, uh, I would encourage you, honestly, seems crazy to say. I'd encourage you to read the Communist Manifesto and see if it doesn't parallel so much of what we see developing in our country today. In the opening pages of his landmark book, uh, Live Not by Lies, author Rod Dreher wrote this. He said, Today's survivors of Soviet communism are warning us of a coming totalitarianism, a form of government that combines political authoritarianism with an ideology that seeks to control all aspects of life. This totalitarianism won't look like the USSR's. It's not establishing itself through hard means like armed revolution or enforcing itself with gulags. Rather, it exercises control, at least initially, in soft forms. In soft forms. This totalitarianism is therapeutic. It masks its hatred of dissenters from its utopian ideology in the guise of helping and healing. Sounds almost comforting, doesn't it? Soft, therapeutic totalitarianism. A few pages later, Dreyer makes the point that in therapeutic culture, which has everywhere triumphed, the great sin is to stand in the way of the freedom of others to find happiness as they wish. By the way, I would so recommend this book to your reading. What this means is that the, the coming soft therapeutic Totalitarianism in America will demand allegiance to a set of progressive beliefs. By the way, why are the progressives always called progress? Why, why, why are the leftists and the radicals always called progressive? I would say that they're regressive. But we will uh, be subjected. We will our allegiance will be demanded to a set of beliefs that are increasingly incompatible with Christian faith and lifestyle. And when we object, when we dissent, we will be labeled as racist and phobic and then marginalized and canceled and in time openly persecuted. And what this means for Christians, I think, is that we need to begin preparing for the prospect of persecution and suffering. And I wonder, are we ready for that? We won't be if our notion of what it means to live for Jesus excludes the very notion of suffering for him and, and views the idea of enduring pain for the sake of truth as unacceptable. In other words, if, 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 where things are going, uh, if things are going the direction I think they're going, your model for the Christian life ought not to be Joel Osteen. It ought rather to be some of these Christians who have survived the gulags, who have survived persecution, who have survived under totalitarianism. My wife told me not to make this message too depressing. So let me offer some encouragement before we wrap up. Turn with me in your Bibles, if you will, to uh, the Old Testament book of Daniel, chapter 3. much time have I got? Not much. I'll have to move fast. The setting is Babylon. The condition is that uh, Israel has been conquered by the Babylonians, taken away into exile to Babylon. Um, the king is Nebuchadnezzar, a totalitarian ruler. Um, Babylon is uh, ancient Babylon is now Iraq, so you might think. Saddam Hussein on steroids. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth 6 cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the province to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, very repetitious. The justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And the herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, the Scots were there, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigger, and the harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of all those instruments shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now if you are ready, when you hear the sound of my orchestra, to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury and the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated. And he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their other garments and they were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace. Because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning, fiery furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king. and saw that the fire had not had any power over the bodies of those men. The hair of their heads was not singed, their cloaks were not harmed, and no smell of fire had come upon them. Easy for me to say. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants Quick thoughts, and then we'll close. First of all, these three men were confident that God was able, that he was able to deliver. Notice, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. They were confident of that truth. Secondly, they were confident that God would deliver that he would, in fact, deliver. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. They trusted in God. Notice verse 18. It says, but if not. (laughs) But if he doesn't deliver us from the fire, if he doesn't deliver us out of your hand, that's okay. We're going to trust him anyway. And they defied the king's command. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not, will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. You see, they were willing to give up their lives rather than bowing to a false god, to a mere man. And in their willingness to stand alone, to stand rather than kneeling, rather than just folding, rather than just complying, rather than going along to get along, They showed themselves to be free men. And they were free, even though they were in exile and enslaved, because by their faith in God, the Lord had made them free. And don't miss this, that they were free before the fire. They were free men before the fire. They were free in the fire. And they were free beyond the fire. See, totalitarianism may arrive in our lifetimes. Persecution may come, but God has given us great and precious promises by which we can live as free people in Christ, in confidence and in hope. And one of them is Isaiah 41.10, where God says to his people, Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you, I will help you, I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Who was that fourth character in the fiery furnace? Was it an angel? Maybe. Was it Jesus? I think so. I think so. In Revelation 12, John sees Satan and his angels defeated and thrown down out of heaven to earth, and then he adds, and I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they love not their lives even unto death. See, you, you may not know whether you're truly free this morning, whether you'll be ready to face opposition and active persecution, even execution. If If you're not free before the fire, my friends, you will not be free in the fire. If you're not free before the fire, you will not be free beyond the fire. The Bible says, whom the Son sets free is free indeed. And in that freedom, we are free even from the fear of death itself. Why? Because of what Christ did at the cross and defeating the power of sin and death, by and you can enter into that freedom by transferring your trust to Jesus Christ today. This morning we're going to celebrate communion, and if you have that element, would you just take it now? Wonderful little jigsaw puzzle that it is. It's like the Rubik's Cube of communion. That night when Jesus was betrayed, he said, took some bread and he said, this is my body which is given for you. My body is going to be given. That's what's coming, guys. My body is given for you. Take it need it, all of you. And then he took the cup. I can't get mine open, so I'll let you go ahead and get yours open. There it is. He took the cup after dinner, and he said, this is uh, this cup. This is the new covenant in my blood. I'm giving my body for you. I'm going to shed my blood for you. And he said, do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Remember me in the drinking of, of the cup. So let's drink together. And let's pray. Lord, in this moment, we remember that the answer to all of this happened at the cross. That because we shared in flesh and blood, you you yourself also partook of the same. That you took on human flesh so that by your death, you could defeat the one who has the power of death, Satan, and might deliver us who... All of our lives were in slavery to the fear of death. And Lord, thank you that we can live as free, conscious, intelligent, Christian people, even in the midst of a society that has moved against you and is coming now against the church. Lord, may we be found faithful and obedient. In Jesus' name, amen.